Do you know what type of doctor you want to be? With over 160 medical specialties and the rapid pace of medical school, choosing your final path in medicine can be challenging. MedicMap is here to help. Each episode features an interview with a practicing physician across a broad array of specialties and backgrounds. Tune in to discover the insights these professionals have to offer and to get all the juicy details to help you map your career in medicine. Happy listening! On today's episode of MedicMap, we have Dr. Jamie Bumra, an ophthalmologist based in Calgary. Dr. Bumra is an expert in cataract and corneal surgery and heavily involved in research on these topics. In today's episode, he will be sharing with us his journey into ophthalmology, his practice, advice for CARMS, and even some tips on running a business as a clinician. So without further ado, here's Dr. Bumra. Hi, Dr. Bumra. Thanks so much for being on MedicMap. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for the invitation and having me. It's really great to have you on the show. And I just wanted to ask if you could start us off with telling us a little bit about what you currently do and what your journey was sort of like into ophthalmology. Um, <clears throat> sure. That's, a, that's a, a big question. And so I am currently a general ophthalmologist in Calgary, but I have a subspecialist training in cornea external disease, uveitis, and refractive surgery. So I'm one of the cornea um, staff here in Calgary. Um, I started, I did my medical school in Calgary years and years ago. Uh, And then I did my residency in Ottawa and I did a fellowship in San Francisco. And then luckily I found my way back to Calgary. Was there anything that was specifically pulling you towards ophthalmology in medical school? What was that decision sort of like for you? Yeah, I think there's... A number of things. I think during medical school, you'll get breaks. And so um, you'll get interested in things. I was scared, I think, into ophthalmology. Uh, I remember the first few days, they showed up a slide of specific residencies you could do afterwards. And I was amazed that there were so many. And then I didn't know that it took so long, actually, to become a doctor, like five years, sometimes seven years, depending on which path you took, residency plus fellowship. And so... There was a group of specialties that were called, at least back in the day, competitive specialties. And I was intrigued by why are they competitive? Like, why do, why are those more competitive than others? So I thought it would be a good idea to start shadowing in my second week of medical school, which was not a great idea because I had no skill set. So I found myself in the emergency, hanging out with a, uh, an emergency physician at 2 a.m. in the morning and not knowing how to interview a patient or anything at all. But then I went from emergency, I went to cardiology, I checked out dermatology, and then I stumbled upon ophthalmology. And I was amazed with the technology. I was amazed with all the things that you could do. So I did a deeper dive into ophthalmology after first year. There used to be, I'm not sure if there still is, an international elective that you could do. So I got to go to Brazil, and I did a month in ophthalmology, and that kind of sealed it for me. But... I think the big things that I learned along the way in medical school was technologically, uh, there's so much tech in ophthalmology and I was attracted to that. So I thought it was amazing. And then the outreach worker, the community-based work that you can do volunteering in underprivileged places around the world is amazing. Like you can go there, you can teach, you can do a surgery and really a one week follow-up post cataract surgery is enough to really guide you that the patient's going to be okay. So in two weeks of work, three weeks of work, um, you can make a a significant impact, especially if you're teaching. 
Um, there was also this restoration of quality of life, like vision, one of the most intimate senses that we have. Cataracts um, are usually a natural change that happened with time. And so most of us are going to have to undergo cataract surgery. But the increase in quality of life and activities of daily living is tremendous. And I thought that was amazing. And really, the surgery nowadays we can do pretty quickly, but still post-operatively get to create relationships with these people. I came from a little bit of a business background. Being from an immigrant family, we had businesses. So I like the aspect that <clears throat> ophthalmology was kind of had this business side to it, if you want to do it. It's not something you have to get into, but that was attractive for me. There's, I also thought there wasn't too many specialties that offer you 50% medicine and 50% clinic. Like I was interested in orthopedics. I thought orthopedics, and I could be wrong now, but orthopedics then I found there was little less clinic and a lot of surgery. Ophthalmology is really a 50-50 split. Um, you have opportunities to go private. You can be in the hospital, which was great. And then I, I would always ask physicians that I would shadow um, in other specialties, and i say to them, hey, if you didn't do whatever specialty you what would you do? And people would always say like radiology and ophthalmology would always show up. Radiology, ophthalmology, plastics, ENT, whatever, all the always competitive specialties. So I think that kind of guided me towards ophthalmology. So you had multiple aspects of it that you liked. And with all of that in mind, how did all of that translate to your practice now? What is your practice like on a day-to-day basis? So I am involved in a group practice and so me being kind of the, the managing partner right now, and so I being a cornea specialist, so my week kind of looks like on Mondays, I will either have clinic or I'll be in the OR. Tuesdays, I will have clinic. And I do, can do minor procedures during the day while in clinic. So you'll be like, is there any surgery there? A little bit. And then Wednesdays is a full OR. Thursdays will be a clinic day. And then Fridays is also a half day or full day of clinic. So you can see how it kind of depends week to week. Um, I The nice thing about being in kind of a private practice is I can kind of mold my clinic to how it works best for me. Um, and, but there are other things that happen with running a solo pra- or a group practice, sorry, is you have a lot of admin duties. There's more managerial duties. I do a lot of research with medical students and residents and other doctors. And then there's a mentoring role that you play. Uh, but the best thing is, you get to create this team that you get to work with. So one of the things at Vector Eye Center that we're lucky with is we have this amazing team. It seems like you have exactly kind of what you want with that balance of 50-50. And you already kind of gave us a little bit of a hint at the competitiveness of the specialty. So can you tell us how you sort of set yourself up for matching into CARMS? How was that process for you? Right. And so back in 2003, while I'm dating myself, Um, There was no ophthalmology program in Calgary. And so it was a little bit, um, it was a little bit different in our approach. So I told you I began shadowing second week and I did multiple specialties. So I I thought it was important for me to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up pretty early. And luckily I stumbled upon ophthalmology within the kind of the tail end of my first year. And then I did that international elective, like I told you, which helps. And so I think there's a recipe or I wouldn't say a recipe. There's a process to CARMS that I think most people know about. One is you have to show an interest in a specialty. 
So one of the ways to do that is to do electives. Uh, another, and not just to show an interest, but you want to confirm that you want to do this specialty. The second thing is, is research. And so I was lucky. I had a number of mentors in Calgary. Um, I looked at Dr. Crichton, uh, Dr. Gohill, and Dr. Mitchell all kind of helped me. I asked them if they had research projects and they had helped me. Uh, they're great colleagues now, but mentors back in the day still offered me mentorship. Um, so they helped me with research. I didn't get to present at like meetings, but some of the work was presented by them at meetings, which was helpful. I did have about seven research projects on it the go. I think I got a couple of papers out of it. Um, but I did five two-week electives because the way it was set up for me in whatever cycle I was at U of C, I think I was in, there's like cycle 21. It gave me 10 weeks of electives up front. So I went to five different programs. And I got reference letters a little bit from each programs. Uh, my mentors provided me with reference letters. Uh, that's the approach I took. Okay. And then if you were to give any advice to students who are trying to go into ophthalmology now with how everything's looking today, what would be the best advice that you could give them? Um, find a mentor if you can. And our office and myself are very much willing to help. I think from the mentors that I have, we'd like to pay it forward. So we work with a lot of medical students if we have projects available. But really, research, I think it's great to do some. I think electives are necessary for yourself and for programs to meet you. Um, I think you have to do, well, you have to do well in medical school, but I think we still work on a pass-fail system. And so I don't think you have to be top-notch, but you have to do well. You want to learn um, everything you can in medical school to apply later. I think if you're a responsible individual I think, and you're committed, I think that is two big assets that are, are required for residency because people are going to look at, can I work with this person, number one. Number two is, are they going to show up? And are they going to take care of patients? I think if you have those things going for you, plus all the other criteria that's required, I think that's very helpful. My my approach was actually different. Is I didn't know what it took to get into ophthalmology. So, I mean, seven projects is a little bit over the top. But I did, I felt I would do enough um, from the research side of it, from the elective side of it, from everything that I could do. So if I did not match to ophthalmology, that I would be okay. So I kind of prepared myself emotionally to go unmatched, where I'm like, well, you did eight projects. I'm like, well, seven was my number. I'm like, if I do another one, I don't think it was going to actually be beneficial. So my approach was emotionally to go be okay to go unmatched in ophthalmology because I did not rank anything else. Yeah, I definitely respect the bold approach. And a lot of specialties now, I think, require you to sort of place all your eggs in one basket. Do you have any takes on that or what do you think about that? Um, I took a uh, interview at the University of Calgary for family medicine. And I remember when I was in the room, the preceptor who was interviewing me even said, look, Jamie, you're just like all ophthalmology. That's it. I'm like, I know. He's like, well, he goes, it shows dedication. It shows that you're focused. And we hope that you get it. Because we know that if you rank us, it's going to be kind of as a secondary thing, I think. Preceptors from other specialties know that it's, it might be the it might be part of the process. 
And it's a big emotional process that you go through. You're going through it right now, being a medical student. But I think you just have to find that balance. So one thing that we try to do on this podcast is uh, provide students with an idea of earning potential within each specialty. So could you tell us a little bit about what compensation works like in ophthalmology? And what does that look like? So I actually do, I help with some of the career conversation chats. And so um, I have an Alberta Health 2018-2019 statistical supplement that I usually go to. So in that year, the average ophthalmologist billed $1,246,401. So I think that's pretty accurate, but I don't think if you just look at compensation, that's an accurate value of what a doctor takes home. So I'm not up to date with all the other specialties, but let's use anesthesiology as an example. So an anesthesiologist may work at a private center or they might work in hospital. I'm sure there's a certain overhead that they pay. So if you do interview an anesthesiologist, I'm sure they could clarify this, but they don't have to buy the anesthesiology machines. Right? They don't have to uh, buy the gurneys and that in the OR. They don't have to set up or create an OR. So we could look at that as as overhead or startup costs. So an ophthalmologist might bill 1.2, but the average ophthalmologist's overhead, whether you're running your own practice or whether you're working with someone else and paying overhead, is really 40 to 50%. So right away, that 1.2 will go down to 600 Okay, and that 600000 usually goes into your corporation because you'll be incorporated. And out of that corporation, you're going to pay tax on that money. And there's a certain amount of tax you pay in $500,000. let us just say that tax amount is about 14% in the first 500000 And so you're going to pay a certain amount of tax, around $70,000. And then that other $100,000 is really that extra $100,000 above the five hundred is taxed at 25%. I just think medical students should see how this kind of works. And so then you're like, okay, 70, 25, 95. So even if I do take $600,000, I'm left with like 400 and something. And out of that, you are going to pay yourself. So that 1.2 million dribbles down. But you also have to remember, let's just say if you, you just start a practice, and really an ophthalmology practice is uberly expensive because there's so much technology, which is a benefit, but at the same time, you have to pay for it. So... I think it's not outlandish to say that depending on the practice you build, it costs you with tenant improvements. This is like you paying above what your landlord's going to give you to build out your practice, like the walls and structures in your practice. Because you got to pay above that for ophthalmology. Then you got a lot of these machines. It's close to $1 million to $1.5 million. And so then you got those payments that you have to pay on the side. And then those machines that you buy have service contracts because if they break down, your practice goes down. You have to pay. So there's a lot of stuff. So I think when you see 1.2 million compared to another, it dribbles down pretty quick in ophthalmology. I just, so the compensation is good, but you have to look at the total picture. Yeah, I think it's really important to break it down that way because when you look online, they give you kind of this number that's not really painting a full picture. Mm -hmm. So thanks for doing that for us. I think that's super helpful. So compensation seems like a pretty big perk with ophthalmology. Are there any other perks? of your specific specialty? Yes. um, I think I'm a little bit like a, I have the ability to sell ophthalmology to anybody. So if you're like, well, I'm interested in something else, I think I could sell ophthalmology to you 
in like four or five minutes. So here's my little sales pitch. So one of the big things is, is when I was, when I was shadowing individuals and they said I would choose ophthalmology, I'd be like, well, why? They're like, well, you can coach your kids hockey team. I'm like, what? And so what that meant to me was they had a lot of time, a little bit more autonomy over their time. So you can be hospital-based, you can be group practice-based like I am, or you can be solo. And within that, there's a high need for eye care. And so you can kind of set up your hours. You can work a lot. And for those, if people want more financial compensation, well, they work harder, they work longer. That makes sense in any specialty. But you can kind of guide your practice, start early, leave early. So I thought that was great. Um, just the different varieties of practice that you can kind of sift in and out of is great. If you like running a business, <clears throat> then those um, opportunities are available. There is a big learning curve if you don't have a business background, but just like you learn medicine, you can learn the business angle of it and you can become pretty great at it pretty quick. I find doing cornea and ophthalmology, my work is very meaningful. And I think <clears throat> later on in life, after everything is kind of set up for you, you want to go to work every day and hope that your work is meaningful. I, This is the best part of my job, is I find everything I do, everybody I see, the work is meaningful. And if you, this is a little bit of advice, if you can base your principles on just helping people because you get to meet people all the time. A lot of the things that we do later in life, I find, are service-based. We're like, I want to help individuals. We are in an amazing field of, of medicine where you see people every day that are in need of help. And if you focus just on that, and I focus on eye care, I mean, it's a very, very meaningful practice. Um, the volunteer work in underprivileged areas around the world, um, amazing, but even in your community. So you can team up with other eye care professionals, ophthalmologists, optometrists, and deliver this uh, kind of like on a volunteer basis. So that service model is there. And then, like I said, for financial choices, you have the ability to work more, work less, streamline your practice. You can buy more technology. You can, the gold standard levels right now, ophthalmology, you have to buy a lot of technology. You can run a simple practice as well and then refer out to others who, who have that technology. So I think the perks are it's very flexible. You have some autonomy over your time. On the other side of that, is there anything that you would change or anything that you find challenging with your specific specialty? So it took me a while to think about downsides because, like I said, I'm wrapped up in ophthalmology a lot. Um, I think there's the other side of everything. Like if you do not like business and you're in a solo practice, then you probably want to be hospital-based because there is a lot of demands, managerial, administrative. You have to make key decisions. You have, to, you have to think financially about how is this going to affect the practice. If you're not into that, then ophthalmology or just running a solo practice might not be for you. Our call is busy. We do a certain number of call days per year, but it's busy. The eye being an intimate part of the body, um, sometimes we see a lot of <clears throat> changes that can affect people quickly, uh, radically, and then it takes a while to get out of that. So the impact on people's lives are big, and you've got to be there emotionally with them to help them through it. Uh, it is an expensive practice. Whether you start it up, whether you're buying tech, that can be a downside of it. Um, we don't really deal with, we, we can deal with uh, patients who who are struggling and, and might, we don't deal with mortality as much as we do with morbidity. So one of the things you have to understand is you could be doing a routine case, but if that routine case were to have some sort of complication that 
complication can lead to a high amount of morbidity where somebody could lose their vision in their eyes. So that responsibility that goes with it, like in any practice, each, pra each type of medicine has its own, but in ophthalmology, just for vision. And then I think currently the demand and need for it is high. And so having wait lists that are extending out too far, having patients that are waiting a long time to see you, that does take an emotional toll. Right. And hopefully uh, that can change and improve with time as well. Absolutely. So one last question for you here. Um, based on all that we've talked about, and you've already given so much advice, but what would be one piece of advice that you would give to our students and our listeners to take with them after this episode? Um, I think medicine itself is an emotional journey. I think in in medicine, we don't really talk about how we feel about things or I think we're starting to. Um, I think through my training, we didn't too much. I think there's a big emotional toll that takes on you. I think finding a skill set to deal with these emotional tolls to some degree can help probably limit burnout, can help you. Um, I look at my kids and my kids, they just want to have fun. And so I find that as we get into medicine and medical school, we get a little bit more serious. Like you might, might have been some sort of competitive player. You might have played an instrument or something and when I talk to medicals and you're like, I don't do that anymore. I'm like, what? Why aren't you doing that anymore? So I think you have to balance this. I have this weird thing I call the meter stick of life. And I used to tell everybody in the meter stick of life, if there's one meter, really my job, if I'm balancing right, 30 to 40 centimeters is going to go to my job. The other 60, I bet is a lot of my life. And so, I mean, I need to balance that with my relationship with my wife, my kids, I need to make sure I'm still having fun. So during medical school, I used to play competitive sports, but I still played semi-competitive hockey, golf, and soccer. I'm not talking about outlandish, huge stuff, but enough to feel like I was playing and having fun. And I think that was the balance. I did learn how to do things like meditation and these releasing processes previously in life, and I continued to do that during medicine. So I think... If you can just venture out and say, look, if I'm in a stressful state, how, what skill set can I create to get out of that? I think that will serve you well long term, not just through medical school, but through your career. Yeah, and I'm sure that meter sick of life approach will make you a better physician ultimately as well. So that's awesome advice. Thank you so much. That wraps up the interview. So thank you so much for being on the podcast and answering all those questions. It was very thorough and super helpful. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for offering this to everybody. You're doing a great job.